Please rise for the reading of God's word. It's in John chapter 6. Our passage is actually a very long one, so I am not going to read it all. And I divided an even longer passage into two parts because we couldn't cover it all in one Sunday. So last week we read in John 6, beginning in verse 25, about when Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. We're continuing in that passage, in the overall passage, Our text this morning begins in verse 41, but I'm only going to read a portion of it to bring out the drama of what is going on. In verse 53, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up. At the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Let's move on down to verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not, did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Heavenly Father, if this is to be a time of testing for us, we pray that your Spirit would be at work in us, enabling us to hold fast to the word of life, the Lord Jesus himself, and that we would find in him a life that cannot be taken away, even by death or any, any threat that this world has to offer. For it's life eternal and life in glory. And it is life that breaks into our lives today so that we can have a joy in the midst of sorrow, a light in the midst of darkness, a hope in the midst of discouragement and despair. And I pray that you would fill us this morning with this, even as we see the negative example in this passage about many who are in it just for this world, who turned away from Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The context for all of this is that the crowd that had been fed at the beginning of John 6, we read that Jesus fed the 5,000 in a miraculous way. People perhaps did not understand how the miracle worked out there, but Jesus had been doing many other miracles. He had been healing the sick. Nicodemus had come to him in chapter 3 of John and said, Teacher, 
we know that no one can do the things that you do except he be sent from God. The evidence was already there. And so the feeding of the 5,000 was not the first miracle. It was the culmination of many miracles. And the crowd loved it. They wanted to make Jesus king. So then we you saw how Jesus sent the disciples on ahead of him. He withdrew to a quiet place to pray himself. And then he walked on the water and met the disciples in the middle of the lake, got in the boat, went to the other side. And the, the crowds that had been so pleased were mystified. They were mystified. They did, where did he go? And they finally found him as they walk around the lake and find him on the other side. And Jesus doesn't feed them. That's the context here. And we looked at the first part of this last week when Jesus said, Don't work for food that spoils. Food for the belly. Work for food that endures to eternal life. We came to the point where Jesus faced them down. He said, back in in verse 36, As I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Let's make connection with this crowd, because I believe today, in our culture at this time, We're much like the crowd that has found Jesus again on the other side. And what we want is physical stuff, here and now stuff. Help us prove you're there, make a difference, because our entire focus is on what we need to combat this virus. The fears about what could happen around us. We have something this morning that is far better to offer than fixing this virus. And that's what should lift us up as we come to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, to remember what he's done for us so that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you lifted up by that? Or do you think that's just pine the sky Christian mumbo jumbo? That's just talk. That's just jargon. Where's the real food. We're in the same circumstance. Now, I don't think you came here to get uh, from us what we think about the the coronavirus and all the discussions that we're just talking all the time about. We need to encourage each other and inform each other. That's not why we're here in worship. We need to hear about the better food, the better hope, don't we? We do need to engage as a church with our culture. Now, we'll put these couple of points before you. It is right for us not to grumble against our civil authorities. It's not just within the church. They're doing the best they can. Some localities cancel schools, others don't. When our locality cancels schools, how hard is that for many uh, in our circles to to deal with just in terms of the functions uh, of life? It's a challenge, isn't it? But let's be a witness to our culture by respecting them. You can think people are overreacting or underreacting. And we can think that and we can share that with each other, but not with the critical spirit. And in that light, we'll be deciding each week what we do, how things unfold. So kind of stay tuned on how much we will continue to gather as a church. I think 
for now the pattern is if the schools are closed, I don't think we want to push past our culture uh, too much by saying, we don't care, our faith is in God, we're just going to gather and carry on, everything is normal. It's right to do what we do so that our culture sees us responding. In fact, if we can continue in worship this next week, I would encourage you next week to, to recognize this six feet social distance. Let's do every other row. Every other row. We'll be packed to the gills to capacity because we have to spread out. You can sit together as families because you're in contact with each other anyway. I come in the back and I think, wow, people are sitting too close to each other. Oh, I realize that's all the Martin family <laughs> and their friends there. They're together anyway. Um, but let's respect each other, show love for each other, but have a lightness that comes from the hope that is ours in Christ and a joy that is ours and not descend into succumbing to the difficult circumstances with that uh, complaining spirit. We pick up in our passage where the crowd begins to complain. Jesus had just been uh, standing them down saying, you've seen me, but you don't believe in me. But I told you, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will never drive them away. He says, I've come down to do the, from heaven to, to do my will. Not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. What should have gotten their attention? What's this raise them up at the last day? But it's easy for us to criticize from a distance these hearers. Suppose I came to you and said, I have come down from heaven and I'm going to give you a billion dollars. Where would you be stuck? Who's this crazy guy? How can he say he came down from heaven? We know he lives right here with us. He's talked enough about Tennessee to know he was born in Tennessee. We know where he's from, and he's saying he came down from heaven. He's going to give us a billion dollars. It's such a crazy claim that you can't get past that. The crowd is stuck on that with Jesus. At this, the Jews, this is verse 41, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say I came down from heaven. Jesus is the one who calls us grumbling. Jesus in verse 43 says, stop grumbling among yourselves. Now, they have less excuse than you would have if I claimed to be from heaven to give you a billion dollars. I would be crazy. But this is the Jesus that just fed them across the lake. This is the Jesus that they had seen healing the sick. The reason the crowds were coming out to him and needed to be fed is because they had seen the miracles he was already doing. The evidence was right before them. And so this was a pretty hard-hearted rejection of Jesus saying, we want you with all your power to do what we want. Remember last week, we made the point that Jesus wanted to give them something far better. What do you want from Jesus this morning? What he wants for you is something far better than just the here and now fixes. So Jesus identifies this as grumbling, and we need to hear him lest we go down that same road. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up at the last day. This whole text from verse 37 through verses 37 through verse 44 is a text that you ought to study about the sovereignty of God. Jesus is not going to fail. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whenever we feel powerless as a church, and particular individual congregations can wax and wane, that's not the, the, the concern. It's not a self-interest even in that. It's just we are a congregation that belongs to a Savior who will not fail in building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is sovereign in it, and all that the Father gives him will come to him. That should give us confidence as a church instead of discouragement to keep going out, to share Christ with those around us. And given these days, I think that for others to see a hope and a joy and a security that we have, may, God may use that to provoke in them the longing to have the same God, let's pray that God will use this to arouse our culture to to look above the material and the here and now. And that he would use this to create a real revival around us. And he calls us to be a part of that. Jesus asserts the same. He asserts uh, that he will accomplish what he came to do. And the emphasis is under, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's something a billion dollars cannot purchase you think that would if i could give you a billion dollars don't look to me there's a politician that just quit the race that might be able to do it for you for about 65 of you but even with that you couldn't purchase being raised up at the last day this is what jesus has to give to us So Jesus is now reiterating everything that he's been saying. It's like they didn't hear it the first time. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now that last verse is the new thought. Everything else he has said before. And notice how many times he repeats, will live forever, have everlasting life, raise him up. That is what Jesus is saying he has to offer. And then he tells us how. He says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And this is where he goes into the passage that I read at the beginning of this message. That if it's a time when Going literal misses the point. Jesus has established that bread is a metaphor. He's not talking about bread for the stomach. That's the whole point. He says, don't work for bread to feed the stomach. That's the beginning of this passage, but for the bread that endures to eternal life. Back in uh, verse 35, when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say there, he who eats me will never go hungry. He says, he who comes to me 
will never go hungry. He doesn't say, he who drinks me will never be thirsty. He says, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He's talking on the spiritual plane about meeting the needs of the soul. With his body, with his flesh, we're going to come to what he did with his body in just a moment. But he's established this is a metaphor. It's not food for the stomach, it's food for the soul. Which is even more important because it leads to eternal life. And so now when he comes uh, to the point and says, This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. What's he talking about? He doesn't offer his flesh up on the plate to be served. Do you know one of the criticisms against the early church is that they were cannibals and that was justification uh, for persecution? Because that's so weird and so odd. That's totally missing Jesus' point here. He's saying, you're so concerned with the physical for your belly. You should be concerned about that which leads to eternal life. What leads to eternal life? It's not the, uh, the docetism, the dualism of the ancient world that when Jesus says the spirit is important, the flesh means nothing. He's not saying that the flesh, it's not that uh, Greek idea that you can do whatever you want to with the body. It's not important. He's saying if you live only for the body, you'll die. That's it. But the spirit is life-giving. But we know that it's not this uh, spiritual, physical world separation where the physical is not important. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's only the spirit. Because our salvation is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. When he says... This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. How does he give it? By giving himself up to die for us on the cross. In the Garden of Eden, Jesus didn't plead with the Father, accept my sacrifice in spirit, but don't do this to my body. It was necessary for him to sacrifice himself, body and soul. He bore the the pain of the cross and the wrath of God in payment for our sins. And we need him more than we need physical food. We need to feed upon him in that metaphorical sense more than physical food. And then he goes into our passage. Uh, the Jews just, Jews can't stand this. It might be the, the crowd itself. It might be the leaders who began to argue sharply. In verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're so stuck on the material world that they can't help but think of this as cannibalism. That this is just idiotic. This is nonsense. They're missing Jesus' point. What we need most is satisfaction before God for our sin. And he did. He made satisfaction when he paid for it on the cross. In his body and in his soul. Why couldn't they see that? Well, we're human beings too. And I ask you this morning, how stuck are we on saying, God, this is our need today. And it has everything to do with the the body, with the here and now, with the flesh, with our circumstances. And we forget what really brings light and joy to know that all of that will pass a hundred years from now. This is going to be a footnote in the annals of eternity. 
But how we respond is not a footnote that counts forever. That our hope would be in Christ and we can share with our neighbors, we have a hope that cannot be taken away. And because of the love of Christ demonstrated for us, when he sacrificed himself for us, body and soul, we want to sacrifice for one another, to sacrifice for you too. It's the love of Christ for us that motivates us to love one another and to, to reach out in these times. That's how we become the light of the world, the salt of the earth. So I I call you to that. It's not a focus on the here and now. It's a focus on Christ, which actually leads to a better overflow in the here and now for all the practical circumstances, doesn't it? Don't think, well, it doesn't matter what happens here and now. Focus on Christ, and you'll find showing the love of Christ because he has loved you and gave himself up for you, that should move us to be willing to sacrifice for our community, for one another. We will bear the difficulties and we'll do it together. We'll call the neighbor that might be alone, might be isolated, might be in need. Watch for those opportunities. That's what Christ calls us to be and to do. So instead of stumbling like the leaders did, just just focusing on the here and now, rejecting Christ, we should listen to Christ. Now, here, if you were a consultant for Jesus, what would you have told him to do? Wouldn't you have told him, Jesus, they're not getting that you're not talking about cannibalism. You need to soften it a little bit. You need to to back off a, a little bit and explain. I'm just using a metaphor. Please don't reject me. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus doubled down. Because he he makes it stark. It's like either you get what I'm saying and it will lead to a spiritual hunger that will be satisfied in my sacrifice for you and you'll find forgiveness of sins. Or you'll, out of unbelief, you're going to find this more and more ridiculous. He doubles down and he says, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Jerusalem. If you get it, that he's not talking about food for the belly, but he's talking about food that is spiritual, that leads to forgiveness of sins and brings eternal life. If you get it, you don't stumble at this. Jesus isn't setting up the Lord's Supper. Jesus is describing the necessity of his work on the cross for you and for me. He had to give his flesh. He had to pour out his blood to pay the penalty of sin for us. And that's what he came out of love to do. He's the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. If you get it, you understand that Jesus is just saying this is absolutely necessary. If you don't get it, and you dismiss the spiritual and you keep thinking the physical, this will cause great stumbling, won't it? So how did the disciples respond? Those who followed Jesus because he was so popular, 
I wonder how people who are in the health and wealth gospel will respond if we go into a desperate time over material things and over health things. I wonder how they'll respond. We should each think about ourselves. How will we respond to Jesus? On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, There seemed to be two groups, a large group of his disciples that were following him. That's the multitudes that he fed and the twelve. It helps to understand the passage when you realize the disciples don't just refer to the twelve. It's the large group of disciples and the twelve. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them. Now, why do you think they were grumbling? They probably were out there and they were hungry. And they were disappointed. They didn't get what they wanted. They didn't bring their lunches because Jesus fed them before. They find them. They want to make him king to fix everything, to vanquish Rome. The disappointments in the here and now are rolling up in their hearts and minds. And we're so prone to grumbling when that happens. It's not just the point of the teaching. That's the context for them. And they're saying, that doesn't matter. He's talking crazy. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are of life. Now he does say, I'm speaking metaphorically, speaking spiritually. I'm not talking about cannibalism. He makes it clear here. But their eyes are already, their ears are already uh, stopped. They're not listening. Yet some, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not believe and who would betray him. He's talking to the multitudes, but he knows even in his closest company of 12, there's that one who doesn't really believe. That's Judas. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. See, the nature we're born with, our natural selves, is to get what we want and do what we want. We don't have eyes and ears for Christ. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We need the work of God to quicken us. That means to make us alive, to regenerate us, so that we have the right desires, the right longings, and we run to embrace Christ. And it's God who gives us that new life. Faith itself is a gift. If this disturbs you at all, praise God. Because if you had no new heart and new life, you wouldn't care. You'd say, this is ridiculous. Who can accept that kind of stuff? But if you care, that's evidence of God at work in you. To want to understand, to want to, 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 uh, to embrace Christ, want to follow him, want to understand the things of God. So when that don't, if anybody's worried, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. I'm trying to come to him, but what if I'm not chosen? If you weren't, you wouldn't be worried. So that's the grandeur of it. But the fact that you do want to come to him, don't say, I'm smarter than everybody else. Praise God and thank him for being at work in my heart, in my life. What happened with the crowds? 
From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. One of the sad, sad verses in the Bible, isn't it? Let's not be like that. Let's call the church to not be like that. Let's not look at the world and say we want to make the church popular. How can we? Jesus isn't feeding the 5,000 anymore, but we as a church, we're going to do the best we can. Let's call the caterers. Let's not dress up the gospel with attractive things. We make the gospel as winsome as it can be, and we reach out with the love of Christ, but we don't change the gospel to take away its offense. The offense is that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ has provided salvation by his work on the cross. That's the offense. Don't change that because that's the hope that we have in Christ that we find eternal life through him. If we change that before a world that is hurting because we want to just become more popular, we're going to raise up a crowd that might follow for a while, but when Jesus disappoints, they'll turn away. Jesus says to the twelve, you do not want to leave too, do you? Back in 1991, I believe it was, we had the first uh, member of our church. It was immediately in our church. We had extended family that had died before. But it was the first person in our congregation passed away. It was a tragic circumstance. Sandy Sluter, and he was uh, fishing on the James River, and the canoe capsized, and he was drowned. He and his wife, Valerie, had been in our church for about a year or so. They had three kids about the same ages as our three kids. And the, uh, Andy's uh, company, somebody from Andy's company called me and said, Would, he's missing on the James River. The canoes capsized. They couldn't find him. He got caught on the his feet. He caught in the branches on the bottom. And he was still, still underwater. And they said, can you help us go tell the family? I understand you're his pastor. My first time. And I went with them, and Valerie was not at home, so we had to wait around the corner until we saw her drive home. And then we drove up in a couple of cars. Uh, I was in my car, and the, a couple of people from his workplace were behind me. I walk up to the front door and ring the doorbell and realize... Actually, Valerie came out. She saw me on the, the, the front. She came out to the front stoop, and I realized these other guys weren't with me. I was there by myself and had to break the news to her and then to her three children. Probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And then she asked me, why? Have you ever been there? Don't try to come up with an answer as though you know the mind of God. Just say, I don't know. I don't know. But this is the question. It does remind me of when Jesus asked the disciples, Will you leave me? Will you leave me over this? And Peter responded for the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Valerie just embraced that as he said, this is our hope. 
this may have happened to Andy. It's still in doubt. They hadn't found him. They were still praying he could wash up somewhere down the river and be, you know, struggling, breathing somewhere on the bank. But she said, this is our only hope, that we have eternal life. Do you know that hope? It's the only thing that cannot be taken away because Jesus has given it to all who put their hope and trust in him. Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Then he ends on the down note, Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Let's not look to the church itself to be a perfect church. Even the twelve was not a perfect group. If you get disillusioned by us doing something wrong and reacting to a circumstance, your hope is not in the church. Your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you find your hope in him, he will satisfy. He will feed you. He will uh, hold on to you. No one can snatch you from his hands. And that will fill you up so that you, we can gather together as a church and share from the fullness that is ours in Christ. Be a help to each other and help to our community. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from Jesus. We're distressed at the multitudes who who deserted him. We understand because we have that same nature that when we're disappointed, we we are prone to grumble. We're prone to wander. We're prone to, to seek our own way. But Lord, we pray that you would enable us to hold fast to our Savior who has a sure and certain hold of us. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.